Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Our second reading is taken from Hebrews. It can be found on page 1208, Hebrews chapter 10, reading from verse 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up to meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And uh, if you can turn back to the first of our readings, which is Psalm 32, page 560. I want to lead us in some meditation on this psalm, really, before we get uh, just towards the end for the last few minutes to Hebrews 10. So page 560, and let me pray for us. Father, the beginning of a new day, the beginning of a new week, Lord, lead us to the rock that is higher than us. For you are our refuge, a 
strong tower against the enemy. Let us abide in your tent forever. Find refuge under the shelter of your wings. For your name's sake. Amen. Alan Patton's novel, Too Late, The Fallerope, is set in apartheid South Africa. It tells the story of Pieta van Vlaanderen, married, respectable Afrikaans policeman. But a man whose social and moral transgressions scandalize his community and destroy his life. Vlaanderen commits adultery with a woman from the local township and everything changes forever. He took off his overcoat, all stinking of the boss, and lay it down in the heavy dew so that it might be cleansed. And he lay down in the heavy dew also so that he might be cleansed. Then he thought he would go home and boil tins of water on the stove and pour them into the bath and wash himself clean of his corruption. Returning home, he saw on the door in the dark a white note fastened double with a pin. He took it down and let himself in at the door. He put on the light and looked at the note and it said... I saw you. Then he was filled with terror for the twig that went breaking in the dark and he forgot the tins of water and the bath for now his thought was not to be cleansed but saved. Sin, guilt, forgiveness, Rewritten in the pages of The Guardian, it would have been a tale of courage and freedom. Man leaves a loveless marriage to find the fulfillment that he deserves. But sin and guilt evaded are not so easily erased. They can, according to David in the psalm here, eat away at you. Sin and guilt can crush you, drain you, destroy you. See verse three? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Think the heat of a a blistering August day. So rare for us, but so common in the Middle East sun that cooks the grass and cracks the earth. Temperature so high that even to sit in the shade is exhausting. Sin, David says, guilt, it it can crush you, drain you, destroy you. And of course, strength sapping guilt, it can just as easily come from stuff you don't do and should just as much as stuff you shouldn't do and do. 
The father who looks back at the sacrifice of his family on the altar of his career. Always busy at work. Never committed at home. Or the daughter whose selfish disregard of her parents is excused because she's busy. Always busy. Busy with work. With children, with friends. As strength-sapping guilt, it can just as easily come from stuff that you don't do and should, just as much as stuff you shouldn't do and do. And yet sin, guilt, forgiveness, they are, for many people, the legacy of a, a sort of restrictive, censorious age that is thankfully long forgotten. The actress Angeline Jolie probably caught the cultural mood right when she said, I don't believe in guilt. I don't believe in guilt. I believe in living on impulse as long as you never hurt another person and don't judge people. I think you should live completely free. Now, of course, the idea of guilt being unhelpful, even damaging, seems plausible when you consider how many people are damaged by false guilt. The wife of an adulterous husband wondering whether in truth it was more her fault than his. The parents of a wayward child raking over decisions, disputes, discipline, the endless self-questioning that leaves nothing but the ashes of what-ifs. The reality is that whilst religion promises a delivery from true guilt, it's just as often responsible for burdening people with false guilt. As the comedian Billy Connolly put it, I was brought up a Catholic, I've got an A-level in guilt. And truth be told, evangelicals are just as good at guilt-tripping its members with extra-biblical rules as anyone else. You can be in a Pharisee in forward just as easily as a Pharisee in Rome. And yet there remains for many people a reluctance to make a distinction between false guilt and true. Why? Well, because true guilt assumes universal moral absolutes. Some things are right and some things are wrong. True guilt isn't a psychological weakness requiring human therapy. It's a moral breach demanding divine justice. Yet in an age of ethical flux, we are unwilling to make any moral assertions other than the moral assertion that everything is permissible so long as you don't hurt or judge other people. And even those caveats seem infinitely flexible. Truth is, people always get hurt. And our judgment is only withheld till someone passes judgment on us. Last month, David Brooks wrote an interesting piece in the New York Times. Its title was The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Now, he's clearly writing from a Western perspective when he says this, religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. Indeed, worse than that, Brooks comments that, quote, people have a sense of guilt and sin, 
but no longer a sense that they live in a universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. Some people here will remember Graham McCall. He and his wife, Jenny, were members of this church family for many years before they moved away. Uh, Graham was a GP, I think greatly loved by his patients, a GP with a remarkable ability to care for body, mind, soul. I remember him telling me about a patient who had come to see him, a patient who was troubled, troubled by guilt, the guilt that was crushing him, draining him, destroying him. And during the consultation, Graham asked his patient a question, an important question, an important question for him, for us, for anyone. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Is there somewhere you can take it? What do you do with your guilt? You see, trying to suppress a troubled conscience, it's like attempting to keep a beach ball under the waves. You know, no matter how hard you try and keep it down, eventually it slips out of your hands and bursts to the surface. My youngest son is is grinding his way through GCSE revision at the moment, as many 16-year-olds in the congregation are. His desk is littered with colored pens and revision guides and flashcards. Actually, I, I knew he was revising in earnest when I saw him with a duster in hand. When your 16-year-old son thinks his room needs dusting, you know the time for revision has really arrived. Amongst other things, he's studying Macbeth, a play that wrestles with questions of ambition and sin and guilt. And there's a moment in the play when Macbeth returns from murdering Duncan and his wife tries to assuage his troubled conscience but to no avail. Whence is that knocking? How is it with me when every noise appalls me? Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. Guilt can be buried, ignored, suppressed, but eventually it resurfaces. And there are moments of clarity for all of us when you realize that there are not the waters in all the world that can wash you clean. Interestingly, for a culture that regards Guilt is a regressive hangover from a more religious and puritanical age. Guilt remains remarkably pervasive. At a national level, politicians and journalists and experts are constantly telling us we need to come to terms with our past, to accept responsibility, to express contrition, to make reparation. 
As the American historian Wilfred McClay puts it, colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. For the demands on an active conscience are literally endless. And in a secular society, without, as Brooke puts it, any formula for redemption, we're looking for new ways to deal with our transgression. And it seems to me that there are two ways, and they're not new at all. The first is to rewrite the rules. If X is no longer wrong, then I am no longer guilty. Interestingly, it's not that we have any less rules. We actually have more rules, more laws than ever before. Julian Rivers, professor of jurisprudence at Bristol University, puts it like this. The state's regulatory reach is growing inexorably. The state's regulatory reach is growing inexorably. Or as G.K. Chesterton so perceptibly observed many years ago, if men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they shall be governed by the Ten Thousand Commandments. See, the truth is, everyone draws moral lines. The question is not whether, but where. What's right and what's wrong and who decides? And yet, if we're not seeking to rewrite rules, we're seeking to evade responsibility. And it's as tactic as old as time itself. Yeah, the old joke puts it like this, that Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Yeah, we're all experts at blaming something or someone else. And if the blame game can come with so-called scientific sanction, then so much the better. Take the American neuroscientist and atheist Sam Harris. He claims that free will, your ability to choose between right and wrong, is a neural illusion. What you think and what you do is not you acting on your brain, it's your brain acting on you. So the constant pictures everywhere in the press and on the internet, pictures of brain scans with bits lit up supposedly explaining what we do and why. So Harris contends that we need to rethink our criminal justice system on the basis of discoveries coming from brain scans. For if you are just carbon chemistry, can you really be responsible for what you decide? And if you're not responsible, then in what sense can you be guilty? Rewriting laws? Evading responsibility? Of course, none of it really deals with our guilt, does it? It is, trying to suppress the troubled conscience. It's, it's like trying to keep that ball under the waves. No matter how hard you try, eventually it slips from your hand and bursts to the surface. See, who hasn't spoken harsh words to someone that they love? Words once uttered that can never be unspoken. Who hasn't deceived someone with, if not an outright lie, then a half-truth that is just as bad? And you know that whatever the white lie spin that you put on it, who hasn't felt that something of honesty and integrity and trustworthiness and beauty has died in the telling? 
and one of anger and lust and greed and dishonoring your parents and failing your neighbor and not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. As the psalmist puts it, if you, Lord, kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? In terms of record sales, Justin Bieber is one of the world's most successful musicians. Apparently, to date, he has sold over 100 million records. But even a pop star with a swaggering bad boy image knows that he needs forgiveness. Sorry is the title of one of his songs. You know I try, but I don't do too well with apologies. I hope I don't run out of time. Could someone call the referee? Because I just need one more shot at forgiveness. I know you know that I made those mistakes maybe once or twice. By once or twice, I mean maybe a couple of hundred times. So, let me. Oh, let me redeem myself tonight because I just need one more shot at second chances. And you think, who's not felt that? Who's not wanted one more shot at second chances? Yes, with other people, but with the God who is truly there? You know, the Bible beginning to end is the story of rebellion and guilt and justice and the hope of a God who will find a just way to acquit the guilty, to cleanse the dirty, and to bring prodigal sons and daughters home. Just turn back over to Hebrews 10, the second of our readings. We just spent a few moments as we come to a close looking at that. Page 1208. Hebrews 10 is the climax of a long and detailed argument. It's written to a group of first century believers who faced opposition from without and struggles from within. And following Christ for these first century believers was not easy. I just cast your eye down to verse 32 beyond our reading. Now, these believers had endured great conflict, full of suffering. Verse 33, sometimes publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And if they faced this kind of opposition from without, like all Christians, they faced a battle from within, drifting from the Bible. Apathy, giving up a good habit of meeting with other believers, disobedience, or as Hebrews 12 puts it, the sin that so easily entangles. And so writing to these battered and beleaguered Christians, the the author of Hebrews draws a conclusion from 10 chapters of detailed argument and his conclusion amounts to two words. Confidence and cleansed. See, he says because of Jesus, because of all he is and all he has done, because he is the perfect priest who through his own death has offered the perfect sacrifice for sin, Therefore, brothers and sisters, verse 19, we have confidence. 
confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, faced with the world's opposition and their own struggle with sin, the temptation for these first century believers was, in some sense, to go back to the Old Testament. Now, I know that that's not really a temptation for us, but for the first readers of the letter, it was. For the first readers of this letter, hostility towards Jesus meant the temptation to go back to the Old Testament was very real, because for them it was familiar, it was certain, it was secure. But the writer says that now that Jesus has come, to go back to the Old Testament will be no more effective in dealing with sin and guilt than any of the world's solutions. The Old Testament pattern of of prophets and priests and kings, it was a good thing. It was a necessary thing. It was an effective thing, but because Jesus has come, it's a done thing. You know, all the elaborate Old Testament system of laws and and priests and sacrifice that we struggle with, it was God-ordained but temporary. Its ultimate purpose had always been to prepare the way for and to point forward to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, going back to the Old Testament is no longer effective in dealing with sin and guilt. And, and this is the key thing for us, If God's good but temporary way of dealing with sin and guilt is no longer effective, if God's good but temporary way of dealing with sin and guilt is no longer effective, how much less any solution that the world might offer? What do you do with your guilt? Is there some way you can take it? Truth is, neither a past God-ordained religion nor a present God-denying rationality can deal with the problem of human sin and guilt. Only faith alone. In Christ alone, the perfect priest who offers the perfect sacrifice for sin. Because you can't rewrite the rules. And you can't evade responsibility. Only God in Christ can deal with with the problem of human sin and guilt. You can't rewrite the rules, you can't blame it on somewhere else, but you can, verse 19, have confidence. How extraordinary. Confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and you can draw near to God. And our confidence is not in ourselves, but in our Savior. Not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done. Not from any sacrifice we make, but in his perfect sacrifice for us for here and here alone middle of verse 22 here our hearts can be sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies can be washed with pure water Francis Spufford's recent novel Golden Hill tells the story of Richard Smith Smith is a somewhat enigmatic son of a British preacher man. 
And he arrives in New York in the middle of the 18th century. It's a story of pride and adultery and murder. And without giving away the plot too much, it's clear that Richard Smith makes a series of foolish and, and reckless and sinful decisions that leave him crushed, drained, almost destroyed. It's Christmas morning. And Smith slips into the back of church. The verger, scowling, packed Smith into the obscurest pew behind a pillar. It had been a question to struggle with whether to admit such a notoriety at all. But this particular flagrant sinner, far from flaunting himself, was pale and subdued. You surely cannot turn away a sinner who might be repenting. Not at Christmas. Not while proclaiming goodwill toward men. You may only hide him. Smith, behind his pillar, was relieved not to be seen. He did not go up to receive communion. Perhaps because he did not dare to walk through the company. Or perhaps from compunction. The tablets of the law were displayed on the church wall where he could see them. And of the Ten Commandments, he had by his count recently broken at least three He closed his eyes and pressed his fist to his forehead and prayed. Do you know that people come in here week in, week out, feeling the same? Sometimes occasional visitors, sometimes regular attenders. Amongst their number, there are the confident and the quiet, the achievers and the strugglers, the seemingly respectable and the openly rebellious. And past guilt haunts them. And present battle and struggle with sin discourages them. And future fears leave all sorts of hanging doubts. And you think, who here this morning can look back on past months and past weeks and even past days and not feel the same? You do not draw near. You draw back, fearful that your sin is too big, too frequent, too final. You need to know there is a perfect priest who in his death has offered a perfect sacrifice for you. And it means confidence. You can draw near. It means cleansing inside and out. Your heart can be sprinkled to cleanse you from a guilty conscience. And your body washed with pure water. Shall we pray?
When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a perfect priest whose perfect death for us satisfies your justice, removes our sin, and absolves us from all guilt. What a mighty and wonderful Savior we have. Amen.